From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Climate change means a shortage of water in the West. Meanwhile, Senator John Hickenlooper says there's a shortage of optimism in Washington, which he's fought against in hopes of delivering a climate deal. I kept saying that we don't have another choice. This is the best bill for addressing climate rescue that we've seen ever. Plus, Hickenlooper on abortion rights, President Biden's approval ratings, and monkeypox. He says he's frustrated with the federal response to yet another virus. Later, they were deeply in love with each other and with volcanoes. Their passion brought them to volcanoes as a way to experience a type of divinity and a type of other way of living that could transcend the problems of modern life. The film Fire of Love. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car, as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but to quote Walt Whitman, it contains multitudes. What Congress may pass and send the president is also a bill to fight climate change and to keep the Affordable Care Act going. U.S. Senator from Colorado John Hickenlooper, a Democrat, has played a pivotal role We connected with him Monday afternoon from Washington about the bill, also about abortion access and monkeypox. Senator, thank you for being with us. Sure. Glad to be on. If this bill becomes law, give us an example, climate-wise, of how it would be transformative in Colorado. Well, obviously, this is the largest uh, single investment by any, any country ever for climate rescue and is going to have massive benefits, not just Colorado, but everywhere. Colorado will have more benefits, I think, than many states, just because of the things, the clean energy tax credits over $100 billion will get more than our share there. We do a lot of uh, rooftop solar in Colorado. Uh, Electrifying America, what, nine and a half, ten million million for that, for home efficiency, electrification, you know, the rooftop solar, the heat pumps, all that stuff but also the incentives for the Affordable Care Act to make sure that we, that we have the subsidies that were about to expire. The savings to the Coloradans who use this is something like 50%. So it's a big jump in making sure that more and more people are covered with insurance. And a reflection there of how broad this bill is. So you're talking there about tax credits for clean energy, rooftop solar, everything from that to presumably money for those buying plans on the exchange. Right. And, and, and also, don't forget, the. I think the negotiating, even though it's just a limited number of drugs now, but allowing the government to negotiate on behalf of Medicare to get uh, cost controls on the prescription drugs, that's eventually going to help everyone. About two weeks ago, the climate and energy measures backed by the White House appeared to be a no-go, in large part because of objections by West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, uh, your fellow Democrat. That unexpectedly changed last week with 
multiple outlets crediting you for playing a key role in helping Manchin change his mind. <laughs> Give us an example of a sticking point and the conversation you had around it. Well, first, Joe Manchin, he knows his own mind. And, and I don't think I changed his mind. I mean, he negotiated this bill. Uh, he and Senator Schumer did almost all the negotiation themselves. The role that people have appreciated, you know, when people were giving up, and especially Democrats, not just in Washington, but around the country, were frustrated and giving up on Senator Manchin. I kept saying that, that we don't have another choice. This is the best bill for addressing climate rescue that we've seen ever. And even though it's not everything that everyone wanted in the beginning, it still is a major step forward and we need to be positive. And I you know, encouraged various corporate executives, uh, people running large non-governmental organizations. I encouraged them to reach out and call uh, Senator Schumer, call Joe Manchin, uh, and just keep an optimistic sensibility about this because you know there is a real danger when people begin to get frustrated and begin to give up. That takes away a little bit from the energy that is almost always behind successful initiatives. Interesting. I, I wonder if there's a shortage of optimism in Washington these days. I think there is. I think that's a, a part of the issue here is people have become so partisan that rather than really talk through complex issues, they'd rather just you know, throw bombs and try and make the other side look bad politically rather than worrying about trying to find a compromise or the best possible solution. Uh, this package can be passed with a simple majority vote in the Senate, but as we know, simple isn't always straightforward. Manchin has been known to change his mind about agreed-upon deals. Another senator, Arizona's Kirsten Cinema, also a moderate Democratic voice, she has yet to weigh in. So are you leveling a similar campaign in her direction? <laughs> um, I don't know her as well as I know Joe Manchin, but I, I know her pretty well um, and have had very brief uh, discussions with her in terms of taxes and things in the last couple months. I think one thing that argues that she will be receptive to this is that she actually negotiated a lot of the tax issues that are in the bill. Hmm. She actually worked on them. So she has some sense of ownership and there might be a change here or a change there, but I think this is mostly within the parameters that she had already negotiated uh, in earlier versions of the bill. Before the deal was made with Manchin, there were reports that he was going to come to Colorado for a pair of events, one of them supposedly in your home. Your office denied that. Now there's an agreement. I wonder if Manchin might be gracing your doorstep at some point soon. <laughs> I don't think he's coming to my house because I would have heard about it. Uh, and I don't know whether he's coming to Colorado, but Joe Manchin is a lot of the Democrats are, you know, frustrated uh, by his changes of, of direction or angry that he, you know, wasn't more enthusiastic earlier in the larger bills. But Joe Manchin's always been a very moderate Democrat. He's a Democrat though, but he's a moderate Democrat. And some would say a conservative Democrat, I point out to people all the time in Colorado that we only have a 50-person majority in this Senate of 100 people, so we need the vice president to break deadlocks. Joe Manchin, uh, he was elected senator in a state that supported Donald Trump with 
78% of the vote. There's probably not another, there's not another Democrat in America that could win that election. And so if it weren't for Joe Manchin, we wouldn't have a majority in the Senate. We wouldn't actually be appointing judges and cabinet members and ambassadors. Uh, we wouldn't be able to get bills like what we're talking about with this, this energy bill passed. You know, some Democrats joke that it's President Manchin. He's got uh, as much or more power uh, as that kind of key vote than perhaps the White House. Uh, but <laughs> that, that back to climate, I want to talk specifically about water. You've proposed legislation for the feds to pay farmers and ranchers to lay their fields fallow and not use their water to keep more of it in the in the basin. This idea of demand management isn't new, but Colorado, I understand, has paused its effort to do this. Uh, if this is such a good idea, why can't government get it done? <laughs> well, there are a lot of good ideas that don't seem to be getting done. So I don't think that is a, a, a delineation of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. We've got to face facts. And this probably isn't just a drought. This is perhaps a, a real function of climate change and that this shortage of precipitation, shortage of water could be the new reality. So we've got to look at dealing with a, you know, what reclamation has said is a two to four million acre feet reduction. This is a huge amount of water that we're going to have to figure out. How do we conserve this? I mean, we're getting to the point where the power operations, the electrical systems that are run out of Glen Canyon and, and Hoover dams are not going to have enough water left to make the electricity that large parts of Nevada and Southern California depend on. So, uh, you know, the upper states, which, you know, it's Colorado, Wyoming, um, New Mexico. Yeah. So we re released a plan, a five-point plan, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, point one was the system conservation pilot program, which you're referring to, which helps pay users to conserve water. And there are a lot of different forms that this can take. Uh, it was scheduled to expire. And so uh, Senator John Barrasso and myself, John Barrasso is from Wyoming, uh, we introduced a bill to extend the program uh, and got it out of committee. And obviously, you don't want to do this perpetually, but it, it, I think it's a useful tool to transition into a newer reality of less water. You know, the one thing I've made clear with my fellow senators here is that Denver Water and the state of Colorado, we're in the headwaters. We're, we're the ones who have been using this water the longest in many cases. Uh, and we're happy to go and try and work with other states, but it should be a, something that benefits everybody and, and benefits Colorado. Too much. I, I argue for it should benefit Colorado first and foremost. <laughs> Because of that history, I guess. I mean, in that case, wouldn't tribes along the river get some sort of seniority? I mean, uh, I well, know there's that, a, there's that's a, been part of the They should have a, some seniority, although there's a big debate because historically many of the, this is the argument that is used against them. People say that the tribes didn't actually use the water. They were here first, but they didn't do uh, irrigation. They didn't put in that infrastructure. I think the fact that they were here before everything, though, gives them some water rights that demand our respect and our consideration. In June, President Biden signed a bill that addresses gun violence, helping states implement programs that include red flag laws and background checks. Those are already on the books in Colorado. Uh, you are also a co-sponsor of the Background Check Expansion Act. Is the ability to make a difference in this realm 
much tougher now that the Supreme Court ruled the way they did in New York? It certainly didn't make it any easier. Again, this is something that's been going on for a long time. Uh, the bill that we just passed finally closes the boyfriend loophole uh, that allows people who have been found guilty of domestic violence, allows them to get firearms. I, I'm actually, Ryan, spending a lot of time trying to think through how do we make more progress around gun safety and, and find some solutions where Republicans and Democrats can come together and try to find common ground. So, you know, I'll make sure I give you a call if I figure it out, because it is some place, it is an issue where people are so dug into their trenches, so resistant to any kind of compromise or, you know, a solution that really will make this country safer. This is one of those ones where I feel it seems so frustrating to me because I think we have a universal desire to, to solve this together. I mean, it's just no question. It's like immigration. How can, when we are so short of workers in almost every industry, how can we not all come together, Republicans and Democrats, and find an immigration solution? So the guns is the same thing. Yeah, although if you're befuddled, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, the, you're closest I, to it. Um, but I'm not, I'm befuddled, but I'm not giving up. That's my, I want to make that perfectly clear. You know, sometime in the, in the weeks ahead or the months ahead, I'm going to figure something out that we can try. Last week, you and fellow Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, uh, who's up for re-election, joined a group of colleagues asking the Department of Veteran Affairs to offer abortions and abortion-related services to veterans and eligible dependents. This is in the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. You contend that this would impact almost a million women veterans who live in states that ban abortion? A larger question, do you want Roe codified into federal law? And, you know, given the filibuster that's often used to prevent such measures from being passed, is such a thing even possible? So absolutely, I think it should be codified into law. Uh, it's an essential civil right, uh, one of the most essential civil rights, and something that I think, depending on how narrowly it is construed, is something that should be able to get through the Congress. Uh, that being said, it hasn't, obviously, and now people are digging in politically. But at a time where people feel threatened on so many levels, you know, after going through the pandemic, to suddenly wake up one morning and, and hear that the Supreme Court, it wasn't just a draft, but they have now ruled that they're going to throw out Roe versus Wade, um, which means that Three of our new judges are the three justices that, that Donald Trump appointed, basically that they all three had lied in saying that this was settled law and they weren't going to try and reverse anything. I think it makes people feel so uncertain. And it's not just women's rights leaders. It's all of us. Anyone who cares about civil rights should feel that, you know, what's next? Um, look at what Alito put in his in his writings uh, along with that, that decree that maybe we should be looking at getting rid of same-sex marriages. I mean, everything's going to be under attack. I think that was Thomas. Was it Thomas? I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah, but, you know, I'll that. just reflect that that ruling also ushered in a very bright day for other Americans who oppose yeah. abortion. So, um, No, it's true. And the, the question is, uh, should the federal government get involved? And you say yes, that there should be a law on the books. 
that should well, not be that left to the states. It, it is a, and again, there's so many way, different ways to discuss this, but to a certain extent, it is a, a religious issue. Uh, at least for many, many people, this is a religious issue. And it seems to me that that means it should be left to individuals. I, I don't think government wants to be getting in between a woman and the discussion she has with her doctor. That's her, her personal issues and in a powerful way, trying to establish, you know, at what point life begins is, is really challenging. Inflation is crushing many Americans. It's a global experience as well at the moment. Uh, but recently, your successor as Colorado Governor Jared Polis suggested that President Biden perhaps isn't being empathetic enough towards those who are suffering. Uh, Polis said the federal government needs to borrow a page from states and rise to the occasion and have a policy agenda that addresses the pain point of the people, which is mm-hmm. saving people money. And again, states are more nimble. We ran with that months ago, right? right. Everything. And I, we're not the only state doing it. Cutting costs, eliminating sales tax from items, cutting property tax, putting money back in people's pockets, suspending the gas fee. Uh, we would love to see uh, the federal government do that. Biden's national approval ratings are at a new low, 38 percent. Do you share Polis's frustration? And I'll just say that he also is up for re-election. <laughs> um, certainly, I recognize the frustration that people have all across the country with inflation. And it is hard, especially for people that have just gotten a raise or you know they're getting paid a little more money, and then they see that disappearing and I think Joe Biden has he's made it a top priority. He doesn't have the same freedom to address inflation that a governor does. But I mean, look at the price of gasoline has been coming down. And I think that releasing uh, crude oil from the strategic reserves was a step in that direction. Obviously, raising interest rates, which the, the Fed has done. But I worry, you know, you've got to balance the inflation with making sure that we're going to also have jobs. And one of the great things, I mean, look at the, the stock market over the last month. No one's talking about that. The S&P 500 was up almost 10%. Uh, that's going to have a beneficial effect, hopefully, on, on reducing inflation. Would you support President Biden in 2024 if he decides to run again? Um, yeah, if he decides to run, I will definitely support him. I think that he has, with a 50-person majority, right, it's a 50-50 Senate, and assuming we get this, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act passed, which I think we will, I mean, he's done remarkable things. If, if anyone on January 1st of 2021 had said, here's what we think Joe Biden can get done in his first two years, people would, would have been saying, you're crazy. There's no way he's going to get that done. The U.S., and therefore Colorado as well, does not have enough of the monkeypox vaccine to meet demand. Uh, This virus can cause excruciating pain, uh, though it is highly survivable. And while it can affect anyone, the gay community has borne the initial brunt. And many in that community feel it's another example of their lives being undervalued, that the government won't take it seriously until it hits other populations as it has begun to, by the way. What would you tell those folks who are eager for a monkeypox vaccine? I tell them they've got every right to be angry and that the bottom line is that we have allowed our public health system to, you know, after COVID, 
we knew that we had to reinvest in our public health system and we haven't done it. And I pushed very hard for more vaccine preparation, uh, pandemic preparation. I wrote a letter to the CDC pushing for better investments, especially even around uh, monkeypox. But every, I think there are, people have a legitimate right to be angry about this. And, that, and, and angry at whom? In other words, you know, you're in charge, partly. <laughs> One of a hundred. Yeah, I, I think they should be angry at Congress. You know, as you know, Congress, you don't get to have your way. But this is, this is a specific issue where I lost. You know, I, I chair the Space and Science Subcommittee. And we brought this up repeatedly and have pushed it. And hopefully we're beginning to get people's attention. But at a time where we see so clearly what happens when you're not prepared to be unwilling to fund a full preparedness, I just find it, 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 it defies common sense, the common sense we're supposed to bring to these jobs. Do you want to name one other priority congressionally that you have your eyes on before we go? Uh, the PACT Act, our veterans who, you know, during all these burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan and around the world, where they would burn all kinds of waste, tires, medical waste, automobiles, uh, and those noxious fumes are now to, they've been established as, without question, creating terrible cancers and other sicknesses that affect our military personnel. And they haven't been able to get the direct correlation to the burn pits and their sicknesses. And this act finally does that. And somehow last week, the Republicans felt that, you know, they had voted for it, you know, almost 20 to almost by 80% in previous iterations. And suddenly the same bill they pulled back on. Uh, I'd like to get that done. I think that's something we should look at. Thanks so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Democratic U.S. Senator from Colorado, John Hickenlooper. He joined us Monday afternoon from Washington, D.C. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with love and lava. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. French volcanologists Maurice and Katia Kraft were considered rock stars in their field, pun intended. The French couple traveled all over the world to study volcanoes. The new documentary, Fire of Love, explores their love for one another and for their field work. They meet on a blind date at a cafe. From here on out, life will only be volcanoes, volcanoes, volcanoes. C'est très dur de volcanologues qui vivent ensemble parce que c'est très volcanique. Donc franchement, ça fait des éruptions très souvent. <laughs> Maurice Kraft at the tail end there saying it's hard for volcanologists to live together. It's volcanic. We erupt often. Well, Denver native Shane Boris is a producer on the documentary from National Geographic Films. My colleague Carla Jimenez asked him to tell us more about the film. 
It depicts the lives of Maurice and Katya Kraft, who met in the 60s in France over their shared love of volcanoes. They then traveled the world filming the most extraordinary volcano footage ever recorded, which it took them to Indonesia, Hawaii, all, all over the world. And ultimately, their passion took them to Japan in 1991, where they died together in a volcano eruption in Mount Unzen. Can you tell us then how this documentary came to be more than 30 years after they died? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Sarah Dosa, the director, and I have been longtime collaborators. This is our seventh film together in one configuration or another. In our previous film, which she directed and I produced, um, called The Seer and the Unseen, there's a moment where we see, you know, it takes place in Iceland, uh, an entirely volcanic landscape. And there's a moment where we see some extraordinary volcano footage that was recorded by Maurice and Katja Kraft um, in 2020. We were filming a completely other film in Siberia, but COVID put the brakes on that indefinitely. And we were wondering what could we do? And we remembered this incredible shot uh, of a volcano and that we were completely fascinated by volcanoes. And we, we looked further at it and where it came from. And we discovered the story of Maurice and Katja Kraft. And we, we kind of like looked at each other, talked to our, our longtime collaborator, editor, and Casper, and thought to ourselves, this is the film that we have to make. So tell me a little bit about the process and learning more about Maurice and Katya Kraft. They have this unbelievable archive, Maurice and Katya. They, they wrote over 20 books, have thousands of photographs, hundreds of hours of footage. And it was, it was incredible diving into this treasure trove of an archive to learn more, not only about their lives, but about their pioneering work as volcanologists. And one of the extraordinary things in learning about their, their work is you see them as not just scientists, but also as artists, as cinematographers, as photographers, that we're using this medium as a way to further our scientific understanding of volcanoes, but also as a way of creating a sort of mythology of their lives and of their, their experience, in addition to, to their scientific pursuits and their artistic pursuits as, as filmmakers and photographers, they were, they were also philosophers that were very much inspired by existentialism um, from Camus and Sartre. And I, I don't know exactly who they read, but you can feel it in their work that they also had a passion for exploring what it is to, to be alive and, and the meaning of life in this moment on planet Earth when there are so many problems. Um, you know, they were they were um, active against the Vietnam War and against many other human-caused disasters. But their their passion brought them to volcanoes as a way to experience a type of a type of divinity and a type of other way of living that could transcend the problems of modern life. I'm so glad that you brought that up because when I was watching the film, it felt very poetic. There's a lot of poetry, uh, especially in the narration when they describe Katya and Maurice's studies as trying to find out what makes Earth's heartbeat, its blood mm. flow. It was very moving language. It felt like a very conscious decision to describe a science that can often sometimes feel more dry. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the kind of science we're interested in uh, as, as the filmmaking team, and, and especially you know with Sarah and our other editor, Jocelyn Chaput. But more than that, it was the language of Maurice and Katya. 
you know, they, they wrote countless poems in response to their relationship and their observation to the volcano. They recorded so many of the myths that they heard from people who lived um, and had oral history of these volcanoes as well. And so they were very conscious of the volcanoes not as an object to be studied and cataloged and categorized, but as something to live in awe of and in reverence to. And through that awe and reverence, an effort to understand them and to love them as best as humanly possible, even though there was a really tragic unrequitedness to that love and an impossibility of ever understanding them fully. You can definitely see that in the footage that Maurice and Katya took of these volcanoes. I'm curious, what percentage of that footage was theirs? And did you end up using any sort of supplementary footage, like stock footage or anything like that? Yeah, most of the footage is from Maurice and Katya and friends that were were on the expeditions with them. We have some footage, as you see in the film, that is archival from different interviews um, that they participated in during their life. And then there's just a, a very brief uh, three or four shots that we we shot, you know, for instance, of their Karens, their books touching, uh, just just to make sure that we we didn't want to use stock footage for those. We wanted to allow that to feel um, it, not not the same as the archive because it's very different, but in conversation with the archive. You mentioned a little bit earlier that Maurice and Katya were trying to describe how they had fallen in love with volcanoes, and it, it seemed that. The producers of this film and the filmmakers, you you all sort of tried to relay that by even turning volcanoes into characters themselves, right? In the beginning, in the credits, it says, you know, featuring Maurice and Katya Kraft, and then also listing all of the volcanoes as characters as well. Absolutely. That was a really fun and meaningful part of the process for all of us Uh as I mentioned, for Sarah, Aaron, Jocelyn, and our other producer, Ina Fitchman. I think in all of Sarah's previous films, something that, that's most striking and beautiful and inspiring for me in her work is this profound understanding of the sentience of the non-human natural world. And I, I think that is embedded in every every film she makes and in every conversation she has. And I think this film is, is no different in an extension of that way of living and that way of seeing the world and in that way of creating art, where these volcanoes that may in another film just be an, an object that we study or we live around or fight against. Um, for Sarah, these are, these are sentient beings that we're in relationship with. And so it felt really beautiful to be able to honor volcanoes in that way but to also do so playfully, which was really the spirit of Maurice and Katya as well, to, to be grappling with these really serious issues and really different ways of living in the world, but to do so with a sense of levity and a sense of joy that you can see in so much of Maurice and Katya's work and which we as a filmmaking team tried to not only reflect, but to reflect in the film itself, but to also live in the filmmaking process. I'm curious. How were you able to put some of these narratives together? How were you able to piece together the the parts of Maurice and Katya's life? It was challenging, to say the least. You know, we, we poured through all of their archive, as I mentioned previously, but we also interviewed several people who knew them. We had science advisors as well who were on expeditions with them and who, who knew their work. And so we took pieces from, from their life, from these interviews, from what we read, 
and we tried to construct a narrative. But what we what we quickly found was, and this is the, often the case with many archival films, there were so many missing pieces. There was so much that was unknown. And so for us, rather than try to make a film solely with what we knew, we wanted to incorporate the unknown into the film as well. And that was a, a major part of how we constructed, how we conceived of the narrator, someone who wasn't an all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent force in the film, but someone who was learning and asking questions and posing possibilities the same way we as filmmakers would uh, as we were going through the archive. So we could invite the audience to, to live that part of the experience as well, the part about trying to move closer to understanding, even without the answers, without any expectations that the answers would ever always be present. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I came away from the film sort of wishing that I knew more about their inner lives, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I think that came across in the narration. Us too. Yeah. I think, that, I think that's, that's the, the longing, you know, and that's the longing we had for them as subjects of this film and people we came to care deeply about. And I think it's a part of the longing of, of love in general too. You know, we, we really view this film as a love triangle between Maurice, Katya and the volcano. <laughs> And we view it that way. Not only were they inspired by French New Wave cinema, which you see in the snap zoom and in their cinematography, but you see it in their in the in the film. You see it in this type of playful narration and in this type of love. But that longing exists to to know, and that's the longing of a scientist. But it's also the loving of a romantic too. And for us, like playing in those worlds that usually don't get to speak to each other or are seen as diametrically opposed was really, really powerful and prescient as we are also making this film in a time when people may not feel a kind of care and a kind of love and a kind of longing to better understand an environment that is increasingly being harmed by us. As you mentioned, the film focuses on the relationship with each other and with their work, The Volcanoes. But what do you think the craft's overall contribution to volcanology was? Yeah, they were they were relatively popular figures in their time in France and Europe and even in parts of the States and Canada. They contributed a, a couple of different things. One was their pioneering efforts to get closer to the volcano than other volcanologists thought was um, acceptable at the time, which allowed their instruments different capability of understanding volcanoes, but also them personally a different relationship with volcanoes. But beyond that, and this is something that we learn about in the film, they were some of the first people to understand early detection systems that could help people living close to volcanoes prepare for and perhaps evacuate before an erupting volcano would be fatal. And at a certain point in their career, they recognized that moving from, and you'll see all of this in the film, but moving from red volcanoes to gray volcanoes, which they called killer volcanoes, that through this early detection system, they had the opportunity to save thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives that may otherwise have been lost. And that is a lasting influence of their work. It was done in conjunction with other volcanologists, but certainly Maurice and Katya were instrumental. And I think they, prior to their death, they could even see the results um, in one instance in the Philippines where some of their videos and some of the scientific research that they did really did help people evacuate and save thousands of lives. Do you think Maurice and Katya then were martyrs? Uh, interesting question. I don't think they think of themselves as martyrs, no. Um, 
I think what becomes clear in just um, spending so much time with them is that they had a sense that they were going to die, you know, as, as we all should. Um, but they wanted to die doing what they loved. They didn't want to die um, without having experienced life fully, without exploring their passions to their furthest limits. And I don't think they wanted to die or expected or even think of themselves as dying in order to save other people's lives. But I do think dying in a volcano, and this is this is speculation, this is not something they ever wrote about, but I do think there's something quite profound about the fact that their body returns to the earth in a volcano and that they can, not to romanticize it, but in a profound way, become one with that which they loved together with the volcano. Um, I do think that there's something interesting too, you know, and we try to tease this out in the filmmaking process where we we tell the audience early on that they they are going to die, you know, within the first five minutes. That was a really conscious choice because for us, death is not an end. There's no beginning and no end, one of the one of the deep ultimate truths. And for them, their their death in the volcano does does sort of not only merge them in a biological way with the earth that will continue on but it enshrines the myth of them as people who cared so deeply for this volcano. And I think that's important that, and that's something we take very seriously that their, their story can continue on. Yeah, so roundabout way of answering the question. I wouldn't consider them martyrs necessarily, but I do think they were aware that their death had, had meaning beyond, beyond a death that would have happened as Maurice says, alone in his bed in, in France. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned the decision to basically say in the first five minutes that they're going to die at the end of this. You know, it, that's setting up that foreshadowing as I was watching this film. Uh, it feels a lot like, you know, the foreshadowing in a horror film, right? Mm. Like, don't go into that haunted house. You will die. You know, watching Katya and Maurice setting up tents in the mouths of volcanoes and rafting in lakes of acid, right? Um, yeah. For me personally, it was like, no, don't do that. Um was there any point, like, when you were putting this together, did you ever at any point feel the same way? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> yeah. In a way, you know, I don't think our intention is to lionize um, risky behavior in any way, <laughs> uh, or behavior that can, that can pose unnecessary risks to your life for no reason. But I think the thing that is beautiful and inspiring is that living a full, meaningful, rich life that is in accordance with your passions and beliefs and values is the most important thing we can do. And, and Maurice and Katya did that in their very um, dramatic way. And I think that's a lesson for all of us to just remember it's not, it's not forestalling or preventing death that we should be paying attention to. It's living fully and deeply while we are alive. That's a really beautiful message that Maurice and Katya not only articulated, but embodied in their very lives. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I, I think, you know, when we're all kids, a lot of us, we have fascination with volcanoes. You know, we play games like the floor is lava, uh, but, you know, we eventually grow out of it or we stop thinking about volcanoes. Uh, it kind of feels to me when I was watching this film that Maurice and Katya never grew out of that phase in their life. Would you agree? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I want to hear more about your, uh, your experience as a child, but, um, yeah, in, in a way, you know, there's this, this is not something we, we really talked about, um, much in the making of it, but 
I was always inspired by this quote by this um, author, Ben Okri. He, he lives in the UK right now, but he has this, this sort of recurring theme of being true to the dreams of thy youth in a way. And there's something, you know, I think Maurice and Katya from a very young age saw the, the splendor and majesty of a volcano and they knew that's what they loved and that's what they wanted to be a part of. And in meeting each other, they realized that in one another, their dreams could be realized. And to me, that's, that's extraordinary. And they didn't do it in a myopic or a, a, or a closed way. They did it in a very expansive way where they learned more about the thing that they loved that led them into different tributaries of this main river that they were following their whole lives. And that's exemplified in the transition from studying red volcanoes to gray volcanoes. But they, in some ways, yeah, they were really, they were mature, evolving, playful, kids at heart <laughs> and that and that I think you can you can see that in in the way they speak and, and in the decisions they've made in their lives and I think that also is something that is, is beautiful as a in studying and, and receiving their their work is a sense that we can we can pursue what we have always loved and that love can blossom into new things. Shane thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Carla. It's a pleasure to speak to you on CPR. On a vu souvent rejaillir le feu de l'ancien volcan qu'on croyait trop vu. Il est paraît-il des terres brûlées dans la pluie de blé qu'on meilleur avril et qu'on vient le soir pour qu'un ciel flamboie. Denver native and Fire of Love producer Shane Boris, speaking with my colleague Carla Jimenez. And we'll be right back to take a plunge in Palisade. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The CPR News climate team recently invited a group of listeners to help reforest the burn scar of 2020's Calwood fire. And we were all surprised by what we found. I can't imagine a more beautiful setting to do anything. It just makes you glad to be alive. I'm Miguel Otarola, and CPR News is covering the impacts of climate change across Colorado, including the ways that we're fighting it. Sign up for CPR's Climate Weekly Newsletter at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was a big deal when a super challenging mountain bike trail opened on the western slope last summer. The Palisade Plunge became the subject of countless magazine articles and online videos. But the trail has also sparked calls for caution, as CPR's Stina Sieg reports. The beginning of the Palisade Plunge is a delectable appetizer. Single track and pretty flat, it winds past pine trees and through bright green meadows dotted with wildflowers, bursts of red and orange. This is the Grand Mesa, the huge flat-top mountain about 11,000 feet above sea level. But the character of the trail changes quickly. Almost everyone I've ridden with has run out of water on it. Cameron Brenneman from nearby Grand Junction has done the plunge several times with friends. I think people just aren't ready for how hot it is. It's about 70 degrees at the start this morning, but it will be more than 100 in Palisade this afternoon at the trail's end. So it's easy to kid yourself. 
A few days before, Brenneman's girlfriend ran across a group from Denver starting out this 32-mile trek with only two small water bottles. And she offered water and they refused. They said they were okay because they, they're used to riding in the desert. <laughs> And then I saw their post when they finished. They said they're tired, exhausted, out of water. And while it's called the plunge, don't be fooled by the name. Palisade resident Chip Wernig says it is not all downhill. Not at all. Not at all. Though the trail descends about 6,000 feet, it also climbs about 1,700. It has the kind of views of the valley floor that make you instinctively open your mouth in amazement but there are also perilous drop-offs. So Wernig and his wife, Catherine Roberts, are doing a different trail today. They say one trip down the Palisade Plunge a year is enough. Fun. It's, it's really a fun trail. It's really fun. If you plan for it and... If you're and... up for it physically. But whether you're up for it physically can be incredibly hard to gauge. In June, during the summer's first big heat wave, an experienced rider from Colorado Springs ran out of water and overheated. The 52-year-old man died on the trail, only four miles from the end. His death has sparked an urgent conversation about how to manage the trail. Down in the little town of Palisade, Rondo Beachler runs Palisade Plunge shuttle services. He says he looks carefully at each person he drops off at the trailhead. And if they don't have the right bike, the right attire, the right amount of water, the right attitude maybe, uh, we will ask them not to do it and gladly refund their money. And Beachler, one of the many people who worked for years to create this trail, has given several of those refunds. On really hot days, he often won't even run a shuttle. It's a, a very remote ride, even though you're looking over the Grand Valley the whole time. You're in the middle of nowhere. You can't get there from here easily. And there are few routes to leave the trail if you're in trouble. And only one spot with water, a creek, which requires a water filter. Nate Bachman says the plunge can be especially dangerous for riders visiting from cooler places with lower elevation. Something to consider in there is about 7 to 14 days is when our body can fully adjust to the heat. So coming in for the weekend just to do the plunge might not be a great idea. Bachman, an instructor at Colorado Mesa University, helps run a human performance lab which studies these kinds of questions. He says there are no hard and fast rules about how hot is too hot to attempt something like this, but in the arid environment of western Colorado... When air temperature is above 80 degrees... We need to be careful. Bottom line. For Bachman, that means with any outdoor exercise in the area, it's good to get out early, go with a buddy, and get a few good gulps of water or sports drink every 10 to 15 minutes. It means carrying more food and liquid than you think you need. And increasingly, plunge fans are encouraging people to not start at the top, but about 17 miles into the ride, a gorgeous spot with easy access known as Shirttail Point. Greg Wolfgang, a field manager with the Bureau of Land Management, pedals through stately aspen trees. Butterflies flap across the narrow trail, and a chipmunk scurries into the grass. There is an incredible view of the verdant valley, thousands of feet below. 
seeing all the agriculture and farming and, and town and looking across at Mount Garfield. It's just a wonderful experience. A serene dividing line between intermediate and advanced terrain. Soon the trail will become tight switchbacks with little room for error. Later, it will cut through rough desert with no shade. From here on out, the plunge gets tough. You know, it's our responsibility to put that information out, and we're working really closely with our partners to to do that. Those partners include the U.S. Forest Service and other agencies, as well as a few municipalities that own some of the land. A local mountain bike group and bike shops are also stressing caution. A few kiosks on the Mesa describe the challenge, but they don't say much about water, though temporary signs have been added. And Wolfgang says permanent signage about hydration and heat is coming. However people get the message, he wants them to understand. that This is an awesome, spectacular trail, but it's also very technical and committing, um, and you need to be prepared when you come here. And he says, ultimately, you are responsible for your own safety. The same as on all public lands. More tweaks are in the works for the plunge. Maybe additional emergency exits and better marking for the sole water source. But the one thing that no one mentions is closing the plunge on hot days. That's not really how public lands work, I'm told. Still, the trail's difficulty can even surprise locals including Garrett Rodstrom, who grew up in the area and leads a search and rescue team here. It's kind of a, a mad science experiment of, you know, all of the things that make mountain biking extreme. Standing at the end of the trail in Palisade, he says better information about the plunge could have been shared in the beginning, but that all the trail's partners seem to be taking the right steps now. Plus, there have only been a handful of rescues each season here. Rodstrom says despite the dangers... He enjoys the plunge. It's a hoot. It's a lot of fun. But yeah, there, there's some definite risk there. I stick around that late afternoon, hoping to talk to someone who just got off the trail. I come the next few days, too, waiting in the baking heat. But I don't find anyone. So maybe the safety message is getting across. On the Palisade Plunge, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And that is our show, with thanks to a team that is always switching gears. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.